anyway, why am I talking about this? Well, uh, I wrote a case note for the British Yearbook on this particular case, which was in the uh, Divisional Court of the Queen's Bench Division um, last year. And I thought it was pretty straightforward, this case note, uh, which was basically to the effect that the court got it right in two out of, on two out of three points, um, but that it got it wrong on the third. But it wasn't the court's fault that it got it wrong on the third. It's because the third point was argued so utterly bizarrely uh, by counsel um, that the court really had no choice. Anyway, so I sent this to... Uh, luckily, there, there's at least four counsel in the case, uh, so person shall not be named. But I sent it to one of them, <clears throat> who then wrote back, that point had never crossed anyone's mind. <laughs> it had never crossed anyone's mind. It's plain as the nose on... Well, I wouldn't say that person's face, but at least on my face, I guess, after a car accident or two. Um, and then we had a long, long, long to and fro in which this person vigorously defended that way of looking at the thing. Well, um, so I thought, well, maybe there's something in this more than just a bit of a boo-boo. Um, so what I'm going to do is introduce you to the case, explain basically what I say about it in this case note, which will be in the upcoming British Yearbook of International Law, <clears throat> but then also walk through, in a sense, my argument or debate with said person, um, just to show that I still think it's completely wrong. Um, but also then to point to a suggestion, which is that perhaps... Um, the interaction of specifically extradition proceedings as a specific type of criminal proceedings and the immunities of state officials from foreign criminal jurisdiction ought to be looked at as part of the International Law Commission's current work on the um, immunities of state officials from foreign criminal jurisdiction. Now, I'm not suggesting it should be a big focus of the work. In fact, I'm suggesting really it should only be as much of a focus to say that there is no issue here. Um, <clears throat> but nonetheless, perhaps they should look at it. I'm not sure they will, because to be perfectly honest on that project, uh, I'm not sure we're in the best of hands. But there we go. So what is the name of the case? Kurtz Bat, as in Batman, and the investigating judge of the German Federal Court is the name of the case. <clears throat> so, the appellant, also the defendant to the extradition proceedings, was a man called Kurtz Bat. He was a Mongolian guy, and he was present at the time of his arrest in the United Kingdom. Uh, and he was here for a range of discussions, or so he said, in his capacity as the head of the executive office of the National Security Council of the state of Mongolia. In other words, a pretty high-ranking spook. He was um, uh, close to head of national security. Now, um, in British understatement, you would say he was a, a rum chap. Um, he wasn't the nicest uh, of characters, and... Germany sent an extradition request, um, not just alleging the following facts, but stating the following facts, because the state of Mongolia had admitted this, had admitted it was done in his name, and had already apologised to Germany. Well, what is this? When he was a lower-down spook, just basically a special secret service agent, Mr Batts and a couple of other of his spooky friends 
um, kidnapped a Mongolian dissident in Paris, took him to Berlin, uh, where basically they locked him in the basement of the Mongolian embassy. Um, They repeatedly drugged him by injection and uh, beat him up a bit. And then they flew him out uh, back to Mongolia. So the German, arre- the, the German warrant, which was uh, a European arrest warrant, so uh, essentially what you would call an expedited form of extradition request or a, a system of judicial backing of warrants, whatever you want to call it, um, uh, said that the offences for which his surrender were requested were abduction and the infliction of serious bodily injury, as I said. This was all admitted. Um, well, he and the first interested party, that is the government of Mongolia, argued on three separate grounds. First, before District Judge Purdy of the City of Westminster Magistrates Court, and then on appeal from there to the Divisional Court of the Queen's Bench Division, that he enjoyed immunity from extradition. Well, what were these three grounds? The first of the grounds was that he argued that at that time he was present in the United Kingdom on a special mission. Now, you may or may not know that there is a a species of immunity ratione personae um, for those persons present in foreign territory on what is called a special mission. So basically it's a mission agreed to by the receiving state as specifically a special mission, and the members of that mission are effectively given the equivalent of diplomatic immunity. So in other words, absolute immunity, ratione personae, from, uh, for present purposes, the criminal jurisdiction of the receiving state for the duration of the special mission. Okay? So what that means is immunity in relation to anything. They could have done what they're alleged to have done in a private capacity. That doesn't matter. It could be before, in fact usually will be before, uh, arrival on the special mission. That doesn't matter. The whole point is, while they're on the special mission, they are absolutely immune. Okay, so that was his first allegation, or his first um, basis of defending the, uh, let's call it an extradition request. The second one was that, regardless of whether he was on a special mission, because he was effectively the head of national security, um, he enjoyed uh, immunity ratione personae anyway, in the same way he argued that uh, a serving head of state enjoys it, a serving head of government and, according to the International Court of Justice in the arrest warrant case, a serving Minister for Foreign Affairs while abroad. Okay, so he said he was one of the so-called magic circle of high state officials who was entitled uh, purely on that basis for the duration of his incumbency, his occupation of that post, to um, uh, absolute immunity ratione personae. So a second species of immunity ratione personae. Both of them, he said, protected him from the criminal jurisdiction of the English courts. Now, the third point, and this is the one I'll be focusing on in this discussion, and the way I explain the argument to you will probably immediately um, set you thinking about where I'm heading. On the third point, he argued that because the crimes for which his extradition was sought were committed in his official capacity his prosecution in Germany in respect of those crimes was barred by state immunity, by 
immunity ratione materiae, what some people describe as a functional immunity. Now, some people dispute that it's the same as state immunity, but it was certainly understood by the court to be the same, it was understood in Pinochet to be the same, it was understood effectively by the ICJ to be the same, and understood by the ILC to be the same. So, in other words, that he was entitled in respect of those matters, that conduct done in his official capacity to immunity. Now, note what he argued. He argued that he was immune from prosecution in Germany and, therefore, he was immune from extradition um, from the English courts to Germany. So the argument was put as follows. The defendant asserts that, as an official acting on behalf of the government of Mongolia, he is entitled to immunity from criminal prosecution in Germany, ratione materiae, that is entitled to immunity by virtue of his actions on behalf of that state as opposed to his status. Immunity ratione persona. The immunity, if established, entitles him to immunity from extradition. None of the parties contended that if he was entitled to immunity from criminal prosecution in Germany, he was nonetheless liable to extradition under the European arrest warrant. Okay? Which is a very strange way of putting it. Now, it's not quite clear, and in my discussions with said person... It's still not quite clear whether the defendant's counsel and counsel for the first interested party, the government of Mongolia, actually led with that argument or whether they were cornered into that argument by submissions made on behalf of the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Now, um, the Foreign and Commonwealth Office uh, appeared as the second interested party effectively as a sort of sort of amicus curiae, putting arguments to the court in the interest of what they thought was the law. And most certainly the FCO put the argument that in terms of immunity, ratione materiae, you should focus on prosecution in Germany and everything flowed from there. Um, anyway, in all of those things, they said, this is what customary international law says, at least to this extent, they said, customary international law is part of the common law and so we just apply these immunities as common law immunities and both parties agreed on that and the court didn't dispute it either. Now before the court was an executive certificate effectively, uh, a letter from the FCO saying we didn't invite him as uh, on a special mission and ultimately the court upheld um, the rejection of all three procedural defences um, by the magistrate's court. So the divisional court dismissed the appeal holding that the defendant was not entitled to immunity from criminal jurisdiction in the English courts. Now, on the ground of special mission immunity, they took as conclusive the FCO's letter that he was not invited uh, specifically on a special mission, and they said the test of a special mission under international law is whether you're invited specifically on a special mission. And so... Um, because the FCO denied this uh, and that was held to be conclusive of the fact before the courts, um, they said he's not present on a special mission and therefore not entitled to special mission immunity ratione personae. Secondly, in terms of the alleged immunity ratione personae by virtue of the fact that he was a high government official, the court looked into what the International Court of Justice had said Whoops, on this point in the arrest warrant case and subsequently in the case between Djibouti, Sheikh 
Djibouti and um, and France in certain questions of criminal of mutual assistance in criminal matters. Um, now, quite refreshingly, they didn't take the gullible approach that the uh, magistrates' courts have in several cases in this country and said, well, the ICJ in the rest warrant case said, well, you know, if these guys travelled, then I guess they need immunity, so let's give them immunity. They said, no, 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 no. The International Court of Justice emphasised in the arrest warrant case that only a very narrow circle of high government officials was entitled to this immunity, and they re-emphasised this in certain questions of mutual assistance in criminal matters. And what was fatal for uh, the defendant on this count is that the ICJ specifically said in uh, certain questions of mutual assistance uh, that um, the head of national security of the state of Djibouti was not entitled to immunity ratione personae. So that was the nail in the coffin for Mr Kurtz Bat when it came to the immunity ratione personae of certain high-ranking officials. Most interesting for present purposes, as I said, is the question of immunity ratione materia. So as I emphasised at the beginning, the court's focus in this regard was not simply on whether he, this guy was entitled to immunity from the criminal process of the English courts, in other words, from the extradition process. That was the ultimate question. But the way the question was argued was that we have to focus on whether he would be immune, and interestingly, wait for this, immune as a matter of international law, not necessarily as a matter of German law. In other words, whether international law would entitle the state of Mongolia to see that he was immune um, from the German courts for prosecution. And therefore, if he's immune for prosecution in the German courts, he can't be extradited from here. But if he is not immune in the German courts, he can be extradited from here. So for them, the so-called forum state was not the United Kingdom, which was actually the forum for the extradition proceedings, but was Germany, the hypothetical forum for the prosecution. So the question then was simply, would he be immune in Germany? And we know that this is one of the hottest questions in international law. The scope of immunity ratione materiae of the officials of governments from foreign criminal jurisdiction. This is why the ILC is looking into the question and we don't really have firm indications in this regard. What uh, the court said was, um, well, the ILC has been looking into this question. Uh, the special rapporteur said that the only exception to the immunity ratione materiae of a state official from foreign criminal, not civil, foreign criminal jurisdiction, is a very narrow one, and it is as follows. If the foreign official is present in the territory of the foreign state without the permission of the government of the foreign state and commits a crime without the permission of the foreign state, or let's put it this way, is conducting acts which lead to the crime, and those acts are not authorised by the forum state, as though a forum state's going to invite you in and allow you to kill one of the people, but actually it does go on. If you think of Italy and Abu Omar, the guy snatched off the street, um, they didn't kill him, but they did do other things to him. Anyway, then they're not immune. Now, on what basis did Roman 
Polodkin, the special rapporteur as he then was, and also Dr Elizabeth Franey, whose book they relied on, um, say this. Well, they said there's a range of cases in which a state has not asserted its immunity. Well, be that as it may, I mean, it's certainly a sort of axiom of international law that just because a state doesn't assert a right which it might otherwise have, it doesn't mean it doesn't have the right, it doesn't think it has the right. Anyway, my point is not whether they got the question of immunity right as such, but what they held was Mr Batts was present in Germany mm -hmm, without the explicit permission of the German government, I mean, he had a visa and so on, um, abducted, beat up a guy, drugged him and so on in Germany without the explicit authorization of the German government. This is the sole exception to uh, immunity ratione materiae of a foreign official from criminal jurisdiction. So basically they held that he would not be immune from prosecution in Germany and therefore he was immune from extradition proceedings in the United Kingdom. Sorry, and therefore he was not immune from extradition proceedings in the United Kingdom. Okay, so they dismissed the appeal and off he went to Germany. So he was sent to Germany. As I said, I think on the first two substantive points of immunity, the court's judgment is impeccable and not without importance. Uh, it's pretty clear he wasn't here on a special mission. Well, not pretty clear, but clear enough he wasn't here on a special mission. And after what the ICJ had said in certain matters of mutual assistance, it was absolutely clear he wasn't entitled on other grounds to absolute immunity ratione personae. On the third question, on the question of immunity ratione materiae, I would suggest that the decision is curious to say the least, although I would emphasise it's not uh, the court's fault as such. It, these arguments were put to the court um, in a pretty uh, rum way, as one of my colleagues would say. Rum, I love that expression. He's a rummin'. So Derek Alton, with whom I work, um, I love that sort of thing. Um, talking of understatement, of course, Australians are most famous for understatement. Uh, and I love it when Australian understatement comes across American overstatement. So I remember first in the invasion of Iraq, there were some Australian scuba divers whose job was to defuse mines floating in the harbour in Basra, about as dangerous as it gets. And in the early days of the war, when the fighting was still going on, and CNN's going... Wow, that's so dangerous. That's so exciting. You guys are real heroes and whatever. And this guy goes, well, yeah, the worst of it is that we can't get any sleep with all this shooting going on. <laughs> but I think the ultimate Australian understatement, although this is sort of seven degrees of separation, my sister-in-law's cousin was flying, like I told you, but he's related to Brad Pitt, but my, si <laughs> my sister-in-law's cousin was flying cat around the Horn of Africa. You know, that chewable stuff that gives you a bit of a high. <laughs> Antonio's is going, <laughs> I know it. That's why his teeth are all that colour. Um, was flying cat around the Horn of Africa, as one does to make a bit of pocket money. And he was forced out of the skies by a jet owned by Muhammad Farah Aidid, the former warlord of one part of Somalia. Anyway, and he was held in captivity. Um, the Australian government refused to do anything about it because they said, well, we're not going to go supporting people who fly cat around the Horn of Africa. And ultimately, his mother turned up in the palatial residence, as Hello Magazine would say. I love this. Uh, Hello Magazine says, you know, Idi Amin welcomes us into his palatial residence in Jeddah. You know, they never say 
tyrant and blah, blah, blah. So she goes to the palatial residence in Somalia and basically bails up I deed and says, how dare you keep my boy and blah, blah, blah. And I deed was so impressed, he lets the guy go. And CNN's interviewing the guy and says, isn't, wow, I mean, your mother, what an amazing woman. Isn't that incredible? I mean, what are you, you going to say to a mother like that? And the guy goes, crazy cow, eh? <laughs> so, understatement. My favourite, actually, I once met a Yugoslav guy in hospital with a thumb in a, in a plastic bag. And I said, that must hurt. To which his answer was, how can it? It is not there. <laughs> inexorable logic. And what I would suggest was that there was no inexorable logic on the third ground. Now, let's look at this question of immunity, ratione materiae, which I will equally call state immunity, from criminal jurisdiction. Um, now, it's not readily comprehensible, I think we can say, as a matter of understatement, why counsel for the defendant and for the government of Mongolia argued the issue and why the divisional court determined the issue by reference to the defendant's potential prosecution in the German courts. Now, extradition proceedings are in and of themselves an exercise of jurisdiction, specifically criminal jurisdiction by a court, okay? And immunity bars exercises of jurisdiction by a court. So it seems to me that the direct question is simply whether this guy is immune from the extradition proceedings, regardless of whether or not, in this case not even whether he would be immune in Germany, but whether international law would dictate that he uh, should be immune in Germany. So take the Pinochet case, okay? The Pinochet case was extradition proceedings. Mm -hmm. And so Lord Savile says it is accepted that the extradition proceedings against Senator Pinochet are criminal proceedings. It follows that unless there exists, by agreement or otherwise, any relevant qualification or exception to the general rule of immunity ratione materiae, Senator Pinochet is immune from this extradition process. So in other words, they didn't ask whether he'd be immune in Spain, for God's sake. They just said, is he immune from the process of the local criminal courts? So the question for an English court when determining whether the immunity from criminal jurisdiction putatively conferred on a foreign state official bars proceedings before the English court for extradition is simply whether the extradition proceedings themselves and not whether the prospective prosecution of the defendant in the requesting state are barred by reason of that immunity. Now, that's precisely how the question was framed in this case when it came to special mission immunity. The question was not, was he on a special mission to Germany where he's about to be prosecuted? The question was, was he on a special mission to the United Kingdom from where his extradition is requested? Mm -hmm. Implicitly, that's also how the other immunity ratione persona was argued, but it's less obvious there because it doesn't really matter. Okay, so on the one hand, the focus of the immunity ratione personae question for special mission immunity was, was he on a special mission to the United Kingdom and is he therefore immune from the criminal process of the English courts? But for some reason, when it comes to immunity ratione materiae, the question morphs to Germany. Equally, if we compare the Pinochet case and the current case, both about immunity ratione materiae from 
criminal jurisdiction. The question in Pinochet was simply, is he immune from extradition proceedings in the English court, not whether he's going to be immune from prosecution in Spain. So, in Pinochet, the certified question of public importance before the court uh, was, quote, the proper interpretation and scope of the immunity enjoyed by a former head of state from arrest and extradition proceedings in the United Kingdom in respect of acts committed while he was head of state. And the way the Lords went about it was explained by Lord Phillips as follows. The argument in relation to extradition has proceeded on the premise that the same principles would apply... Uh, uh, that the same principles apply that would apply if Senator Pinochet were being prosecuted in this country for the conduct in question. And it seems to me that that is an appropriate premise on which to proceed, and that's precisely how they proceeded. They argued, you know, if he were being prosecuted here rather than just extradited, would he be immune? So in short, uh, it's completely puzzling why the situation should change, as between, in the, one, in the same case special mission immunity ratione personae and uh, immunity ratione materiae, and in two different cases about the same immunity okay, between Pinochet and the current case. The bottom line is the forum state for the purposes of state immunity from extradition proceedings is the, extra, is the state where extradition is requested from, and that is the United Kingdom, and it might be added Mr Kurtzbad had done nothing untoward in the United Kingdom. In other words, if one accepts for the sake of argument that the only exception to immunity ratione materiae from foreign criminal jurisdiction for a state official is the territorial one, then he ought to have been immune from extradition from the United Kingdom. So, what possible explanation might there be for, let's just say, the difference between Pinochet and the current case? Well, one possible explanation is that Pinochet was a bog-standard traditional extradition case, whereas this one is a European arrest warrant case. Um, but that makes no difference whatsoever, both as a matter of local law and as a matter of international law. As a matter of English law, even though um, a European arrest warrant is supposed to do away with extradition, a request pursuant to a European arrest warrant is treated as an extradition request under the Extradition Act. Mm -hmm. So... They're both forms of extradition, according to English law. It's simply that a European arrest warrant involves an expedited form of extradition in which you don't consider double criminality and a range of other things. Okay, so that's not the difference between Pinochet in this case. And anyway, that difference wouldn't explain why two different sorts of immunity in the same case are treated differently. Um, so... That's a bit of a quandary. And quite frankly, I can't see what the basis of the distinction is, although I'll come back to that point in a minute. Um, there's a secondary issue uh, raised by the case, which is also problematic, and I mentioned it before. The question before the court <clears throat> was not whether he would be immune in Germany. The German prosecutor said he wouldn't be immune in Germany. But anyway, of course, that's not binding either, whether he would be immune in Germany would be something determined ultimately by the German courts. Bizarrely, the question put to the divisional court was whether international law would require that he be immune in Germany, which is an altogether different question. Now, it may well be that German law operates by renvoi to international law in that regard, but it may be that it doesn't. Who knows? And it's completely immaterial. 
Now, all I can guess, and again, this is purely guesswork, is that the full argument presented by counsel for the defendant was as follows. His prosecution in Germany, if contrary to an immunity that uh, Mongolia was entitled to, would be contrary to international law. And in facilitating that prosecution through extradition, the United Kingdom would itself have been in breach of international law. Now, the problem is there's a range of difficulties with this argument, both international and domestic. The international difficulty is this. It's unclear to me how it could be said to be internationally wrongful for a state to hand over to another state someone um, in a situation where it is merely the prosecutor that has said this person won't enjoy immunity. And that is ultimately a question to be determined by a court. And anyway, also in a situation in which there is an international obligation to hand him over. Now, of course, there can always be competing international obligations, so that's not necessarily determinative. But it seems to me that the United Kingdom, in handing someone over to Germany in a situation where simply he may or may not have been accorded immunity that international law would grant the state of Mongolia, cannot possibly be seen as, for example, aid or and assistance in the commission of an internationally wrongful act within the meaning of Article 16 of the Articles on Responsibility of States for Internationally Wrongful Acts. So I find it hard to believe the United Kingdom would have been in breach. And anyway, as a matter of domestic law, it's completely unclear how it could possibly be open to an English court exercising a mandatory statutory jurisdiction to say, we're not going to hand the person over because there's doubts as to international law. I mean, what competence would they have to do that when there is a clear statutory mandate to hand the person over? As it is, of course, for those of you like Dapo who are familiar with the idea, um, the Foreign Act of State Doctrine and Butte's non-justiciability as well, I would frown very much on an English court looking to see whether Germany would be in breach of international <laughs> law, uh, unless, of course, it were a flagrant breach according to the Kuwait Airways case, but uh, given that the scope of immunity ratione materia of a foreign state official from criminal jurisdiction is intensely controversial, it would be hard to see how it is such. So the long and the short of it is, um, I, uh, I think it's an intensely problematic case. Now, I have tried, however to entertain some of the arguments put to me by the particular person that I am mentioning. So let's, let's filter out the Pinochet business. Um, sorry, I'm just seeing what time it is. Um, so let's filter out domestic law questions. Let's also filter out the question of why it should have mattered what Germany did. And let's just ask ourselves the question of whether, as a matter of pure international law, it is or should be the case that whereas all other immunities are treated, um, treat the forum state as the extraditing state, for some reason immunity ratione materia should be different. Um, I should emphasise in this regard, as I emphasised before, as far as international law is concerned, where the surrender is pursuant to a European arrest warrant or a traditional extradition request is immaterial, both of them are exercises of jurisdiction criminal jurisdiction by the local court. Okay, well, there are two possible arguments. One is a principled distinction between the two principled arguments, and one of them 
and the others are teleological arguments. Now, is there a principled reason for treating immunity ratione materiae, subject matter immunity, different from immunity ratione personae for the purpose of extradition? Well, I would suggest absolutely not. It seems to me that the only salient distinction between the two is that one of them is subject to an exception. And it seems to me a wholly logically misconstrued argument to say that it is the exception which determines the application of the rule. So in other words, because you've got an exception based on territoriality, we should consider where the prosecution is to be held, but where there's no exceptions, we consider the local forum. Why the exception should dictate something as essential as the focus of the inquiry uh, is, to me, completely elusive. I would also add, given that it's a completely contingent exception, in other words, what if tomorrow's states decided there was no exception? Uh, It seems pretty baseless to me to ground it on a contingent exception, and it seems to me perfect folly to base it on an exception which isn't even necessarily true, um, because it's really not clear whether that's an exception or at least the only exception. So all of this is to put the cart before the horse. Also, as a matter of principle, it seems to me why it should uh, there should be no difference, it seems to me, between the application of immunity ratione materiae for the purposes of prosecution in the English courts and for the purposes of extradition from the English courts. Both of them are about the ex- exercise of jurisdiction by the English courts. OK. Well, the only arguments that... I can come across, and this is revealing something of the conversation I had with unidentified persons, um, are teleological. Um, The unidentified persons makes it sound like they're wearing a sort of balaclava or something like that, or that they have, you know, voice modification techniques. I used to love it when the IRA used to speak in this country because you couldn't hear the IRA speak, but you could hear a guy with a Northern Irish accent imitating the IRA. So, like... When they, uh, when, when they sort of said that now the IRA can be heard on TV, a whole lot of voice actors you know, lost their jobs. It's like in Germany. All films in Germany are dubbed, and the reason that is is a job protection scheme. The voice actors militate against the, the um, subtitling of films because someone is the voice of Brad Pitt, someone is the voice of my sister-in-law's cousin, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, the other, but the greatest thing is, my wife is Spanish, and so we, we avidly watched Etta's Ceasefire. Have you ever seen these jokers? My God. They're wearing this gold towel or something over their head with a beret on top of the gold towel, like some sort of um, frittata <laughs> or whatever. And then they announce their thing, and then all at the end in unison they go, you know, Ole, or something like that. It's just absurd how anyone... But, of course, they kill people, so it's very dangerous. Um, Okay, what are the teleological arguments? Well, I have heard it said to me that unless you focus on immunity where the person is going to be prosecuted rather than immunity from the extraditing court, you would get an anomalous situation in which extradition from the requested state is barred by immunity ratione materiae, even though prosecution in the requesting state would not be. Well, to that I say, so what? So what? 
What is so anomalous about this? Well, first of all, anyway, I don't like teleological arguments, okay? So you get all these people who have their little shrine to Miles McDougall and whatever. I've got a shrine to Dionysio Ancelotti uh and to Hans Kelsen. You know, let there be law and let the heavens whatever, not justice law. Um, Is this so anomalous? Well, this happens all the time with immunity ratione personae. So let's take Kurtz Bat. If he were on a special mission, okay, to the United Kingdom, he would have been barred from being extradited by the United Kingdom, even though he would have been perfectly amenable to prosecution in Germany because he wasn't in Germany on a special mission. Okay, so that happens all the time. Take a diplomatic agent, accredited to his state's permanent mission in the United Kingdom, but wanted for prosecution in Germany for, you know, murdering his wife or something like that, can be prosecuted in Germany, but enjoys absolute immunity ratione persona in this country. So it happens all the time. Secondly, let's compare this to the civil context. In other words, state immunity from civil proceedings. Um, The range of exceptions to state immunity from civil proceedings are much more um, fulsome, shall we say, than uh, seem to be acknowledged in the criminal context. But one of them is the equivalent exception, the so-called territorial tort exception, the idea that um, acts or omissions by a foreign state in the territory of the forum state, giving rise to death or personal injury or property damage in the forum state's territory, are not something in relation to which a state or any of its organs or officials can be immune. Well, imagine the following scenario. Official from State A or organ of State A or State A itself is successfully sued in the courts of State B in relation to an act committed in the territory of State B. Okay, so... uh, Because of the territorial tort exception, that state cannot rely on state immunity for the courts of state B. Then what regularly happens is that in state C, the claimant turns up with her uh, judgment and seeks uh, recognition and enforcement of that judgment. Now, as the uh, ICJ told us in jurisdictional immunities of the state, proceedings for recognition and enforcement are themselves proceedings, then... In other words, it's a question of immunity from jurisdiction, not from execution. And under international law, although it's different under English law, but under international law, the state in which the uh, proceedings for recognition and enforcement are brought has to treat those proceedings as if they're proceedings on the merits for the purposes of immunity. Not for the merits, but for the purposes of immunity. So in other words, the court in state C has to ask, well, did this tort happen in the territory of state C? The answer is no. If there's no other exception, we can't enforce it. Now, to me, that doesn't seem to me to be substantially different from the slightly different question uh that you could be prosecuted in another state but can't be extradited from that state. It seems to me that the idea that you can win a case in one state but can't enforce it in another is just the sort of stuff that goes on. We seem to accept that for some reason... Uh, when it comes to the criminal thing, it's arguably different. Okay, well then, said person comes back and says, but what you're telling me, therefore, is that you can never get extradition 
for ultimate prosecution on the basis of the territorial tort exception, or territorial crime exception. Well, again, so what? That's putting the cart before the horse. That's putting the exception before the rule. Moreover, it's not the only example of a crime on the territory of a state which goes unpunished because of an, uh, an immunity. It happens with diplomats all the time. They don't get punished for their crimes. They do. They go home and, and whatever. It might also be added that leaving aside immunity... Other workings of extradition law make this a regular scenario. So take the Alexander Litvinenko case, okay? So supposedly um, uh, an official from a foreign secret service comes to this country, kills an enemy of the state uh, on orders of the state, supremely sovereign act, uh, and therefore... Prima facie, uh, at least entitled to immunity, ratione materia. But of course, it happens on this territory, so the English courts, according to the ILC, would have jurisdiction to prosecute. But the simple fact is the Russians won't extradite him because he's a national. Now, that happens all the time as well. Or indeed, the guy runs to Bolivia, where you've got no extradition agreement to begin with. Okay, so again, it seems to me that all of this sucks, but some of it doesn't suck more than other. You know, I mean, it's just all. You know, borders create this sort of injustice. Well, what about, finally, the obverse situation or the converse or the inverse or the outverse, um, whereby prosecution in the requesting state would be barred but not extradition from the requested state. But again, that's not so curious. So again leaving aside the territorial bit and whatever, take immunity ratione persona. A diplomatic agent accredited to her state's permanent mission in Germany comes to the United Kingdom with her lover to do some shopping, having murdered her husband back in Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, could be sued back in Germany, mm-hmm, but oh, hang on. I'm trying to get this the other way around now. Um, yeah, extradition from the UK would be permissible, but prosecution in Germany not. And anyway, think about it. I mean, in how many examples is that going to happen? Ultimately, the only state that's got a pressing interest in having that person back when they've committed a crime... Let's go back to the ratione materia, I think. OK, let's say it's a question of ratione, immunity ratione materia. They commit a crime in this country... The only state that's going to want them back again for prosecution is their own state that they represent. And they don't need to rely on the, tort except, on the crime exception in the territory. They just waive the immunity. And then they go back and then they prosecute them because it's their official. In other words, it's not a problem in practice. Um, so ultimately, try as I might, I just can't think that there is any logic at all in the argument and ultimately the decision on the third ground. Now, what are the implications for this? Uh, you can't blame the International Law Commission for having so far not dealt with extradition as a separate head of exercise of criminal jurisdiction because, as I've tried to prove to you, there is logically no difference. Nonetheless, the fact that you have this very odd case and that there are at least potentially some other questions to be examined in relation to the specific context of extradition, it might at least be useful for the Special Rapporteur to devote one report um, to this question. 
So, for example, some of the other questions of immunity linked to extradition is, for example, a mere request for extradition a violation of immunity? Um, the mere circulation of, arrest warrant, of an arrest warrant in the arrest warrant case was held to be, quote, a violation of the immunity and inviolability of the foreign minister, but that doesn't tell us whether it's a question of inviolability or of immunity, and then it also raises other questions as to whether immunity ratiae materia includes inviolability, etc., etc. So there's at least that question. There's questions as to the existence of out debtere, out judicare obligations. Do we have to look to the state where they're going to end up or the state where they're being extradited, and so on. So there's enough in it, perhaps, for the ILC to look at it. Although, perfectly honestly, I don't blame them if they don't, because there's nothing in it. Um, so there we go. Wrapping this all up, having said all this and criticised the thing, um, I have to tell you something about how this point came up before the court. It was not argued before the magistrate's court. It came up very late in the day in the second round of written pleadings, and even on the day of the, the oral pleadings, um, counsel for the Foreign and Commonwealth Office didn't even know if the point was going to be taken. So basically this was all on the hoof, as the court was at pains to point out. And the court itself said, unfortunately, because of its late deployment, the issue did not have the benefit of the sustained argument that would have been of value to the court, and I think that that is perfectly clear. So hopefully, although this wasn't appealed, and although ultimately Mongolia didn't follow up on its threat to take it to the International Court of Justice, which would have been very fun, um, uh, let's hope at some point the question comes back up and they fix all of this up. Now, the twist in the tale is that Mr Kurtzbat went back to Germany, from where he was promptly sent back to Mongolia. Why? Three weeks later, Germany concluded a range of investment agreements with Mongolia, giving the Germans preferential access to the natural gas market in Mongolia. So, yes, the world sucks. Um, but that's an understatement. Uh, so there we go. I welcome any questions. Thanks.